Yankees Files podcast. We are back. I'm Will Harris. You're Alec Whipple. The rest of you, as always, are not either of us unless you're us in the future listening to our own podcast, which we totally, totally don't don't do totally never do that um anyway whipple it's been uh it's been a little while since our last podcast unfortunately uh we aren't seemingly any closer to having a baseball season which is a darn shame um i'm realizing that the tickets i have for the first yankees red sox series of the year may be in jeopardy of being tickets to a game that doesn't happen that would be really disappointing um anyway I'm thinking a lot about the content that we put out this week, and we'll get to that. But first, I think, you know, the big elephant in the room is Hall of Fame voting results. Um, They didn't match up well with either of our ballots, did they? No, they they really didn't. And um, it's it's a shame a lot of the the results, a, a lot of players that I think we felt unequivocally uh, you, me, and Ryan in our last discussion were Hall of Famers. We're now either off the ballot or have percentages so low that it doesn't bode well for their future chances. And the one player to get on was a guy that we we definitely thought was a Hall of Famer in some respects. But you, you know, you took a very strong stance that he wasn't. I took a stance that he was a borderline Hall of Famer. And the writers felt it appropriate to name him a first ballot Hall of Famer. And I'm just I'm annoyed, you know, I, first off, I think, you know, we, we, we respect baseball history and we respect, uh, David Ortiz who we're referring to, you know, everything that he did. Maybe you do. Um, and so congratulations to him. I, I think, you know, I would like to say that, you know, we're not in the business of hating on people. Uh, what I would like to hate on though, is the process that led to Ortiz being elected, because I think it's just the most hypocritical show from so many writers i mean so many writers as you pointed out on twitter had david ortiz on their ballot and not alex rodriguez and not that many had alex rodriguez not david ortiz and so basically these writers determined that it was okay to induct a player who took steroids it was not okay to induct other players who did take steroids so they basically said steroids don't matter they said performance doesn't matter too apparently because ortiz's performance was so much so much worse than Barry Bonds or Alex Rodriguez for the potential hitters. And so their line in the sand was basically drawn at, is this a guy that we like and, you know, we're going to support because he was nice to the media versus A-Rod or Bonds who were scapegoats and gotten, um, you know, their fair share of hot water. And I think it's ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous that a morality play was what determined who is a Hall of Famer or not. And my stance on this has been, you either have to let them all in or let no one in. And I'm in support of letting them all in. You know, my ballot had Bonds, Ortiz, Clemens, and A-Rod. But I think if you draw the line, if you say A-Rod took steroids, Bonds took steroids, you have to keep that line consistent. And that means Ortiz is not a Hall of Famer. And I think it's embarrassing that hundreds of writers bent over backwards to, you know, be like, oh, Ortiz's one positive test was discredited. And even Rob Manfred bent over backwards to try and make this happen. I mean... Let it not be said that MLB does not play favorites with the disgusting show of favoritism that they they've played towards Ortiz away from A Rod, and it's just it's it's a shame because you know more and more the Hall of Fame is becoming not a hall of the very best people, but a hall of players that we've deemed worthy and that we liked and that we're going to shape our arguments around, and you know 
if you want to, I mean, the last thing I'll say again, if you want to cut the line at people who took steroids, Ortiz is on unequivocally on the other side of that line. He took steroids. And I don't know how many times we have to repeat it. We could just spend this whole podcast saying it over and over again. It just seems like some people do not want to remember that fact. Yeah. And I mean, the the more you get into the voting, the worse and worse it looks. On, on public ballots, A-Rod and Manny Ramirez had effectively the same percentage of the vote. Manny Ramirez was worth fully 50 fewer war than Alex Rodriguez over the course of their careers. Now, look, if you want to say someone with almost 70 war is a shoe-in Hall of Famer and A-Rod is also a shoe-in Hall of Famer and that's why people voted for both of them, that's fine. But... The idea that Manny Ramirez and Alex Rodriguez are equally deserving of being Hall of Famers and neither one is as deserving of being a Hall of Famer as David Ortiz is heinous. Um, I mean, I, I, I agree with almost everything you said except the idea that there's a good argument for David Ortiz to be a Hall of Famer. I, I really think there's not. I think it's very weak. Um, but the more you get into this stuff, the worse and worse it gets. I mean, you think about the fact that they reduced the eligibility on the Hall of Fame ballot from uh, 15 years to 10 years right before Clemens and Bonds got on the ballot so that the electorate that they had at the time that they knew would never uh, induct Clemens and Bonds would be a similar enough electorate 10 years later that the guys wouldn't get in. Um, You think about the fact that Sammy Sosa, Gary Sheffield, and David Ortiz all have exactly the same... uh, kind of level of legitimate steroid speculation from those 2003 tests and that Sosa and Sheffield were both meaningfully better players than Ortiz and that neither of them came close to getting in. Um, It's really like some incredibly bad stuff that the writers pulled this year. And, you know, you don't have a guy with seven Cy Youngs in the Hall of Fame, but you have David Ortiz. You don't have a guy with 162 war and um, and 762 home runs in the Hall of Fame, but you have David Ortiz. Like, what are we? What are we doing here? What kind of operation are we running? I mean, it it, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, I think the writers lost a ton of credibility this year, um, and I think we probably have to start assessing pretty critically what merit we give to the Hall of Fame and how we think about the Hall of Fame and the place it occupies in our baseball discourse. You know, there are a lot of guys who should be in the Hall of Fame who aren't in the Hall of Fame for a lot of stupid reasons. Um, You know, Dick Allen should be in the Hall of Fame. He has a career OPS plus of 156. Um and has 58.7 war despite having like 60% of the plate appearances of David Ortiz. Why didn't he get in? I don't know. Maybe because he only played 15 years. Maybe because he played for a bunch of different teams. Maybe because he didn't hit 300 in his career and didn't hit 400 home runs. Um, Greg Nettles, I've been, you know, that's been my campaign on Twitter. Greg Nettles is an incredible player. He should be in the Hall of Fame, and I think the only reason he's not is because people thought batting average was really important. Greg Nettles only has four fewer war than Derek Jeter. 
And he has the sixth most home runs of anyone who played 50% or more of their games at third base. Greg Nettles was unbelievable, and he was one of the greatest defenders we've ever seen at third base. Um, and, and he didn't get in, and he won't get in. And, uh, you know, he's not even on the level of Bonds and Clemens, but if you ask me, he's a meaningfully more deserving candidate than, uh, than Ortiz. I mean, you, you really nailed it when you said, you know, writers just picked guys they liked. And the Hall of Fame being a popularity contest among a kind of BS sample of writers is a really bad way to operate a baseball institution. And I think, you know, Bonds and Clemens were really the first test cases for it. I think what we're seeing is that um, you just can't take the Hall of Fame seriously anymore. And and I think the last thing I'll say is... um, You remember the man from Milwaukee, uh, as A-Rod put it, who used to be in charge of Major League Baseball? Yeah. Bud. Can you you tell me... Can you tell me if that guy's in the Hall of Fame? I mean, it's it's unfortunate that he is, and I know where you're going with this. Yeah, so he is, yeah. Bud Selig, who was the commissioner of baseball during its kind of resurgence in the 90s and early 2000s, is in the Hall of Fame and is part of what I think is basically a big conspiracy to blame steroid use and the tolerance that there was for steroid use entirely on the players um, he then gets into the Hall of Fame, profits incredibly from the performances of those players, and then blackballs them uh, when it comes out that the league had, you know, a massive performance-enhancing drug thing going on. Um, so Bud Selig is only in the Hall of Fame because of the performance of players like Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, Alex Rodriguez, Gary Sheffield, Manny Ramirez, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire— during his tenure uh, as baseball's commissioner, and he is involved in the active exclusion of those guys from the Hall of Fame. And that is one of the most cowardly BS things about this. Um, And I think it has to be said that, like, Bud Selig is one of the worst offenders in this entire process. Not to absolve the writers of their responsibility to still do right by these players, which... I, as far as I'm concerned, there's no argument they did, but um, it's important that we recognize that Bud Selig was a huge problem in all of this. Yeah, and I think that actually brings up an interesting point that I just considered about commissioners, and I actually pose an interesting hypothetical. And granted, I think, you know, if somehow the, you know, the baseball season got canceled this year and there was a huge revolt against the uh, current commissioner, Rob Manfred, um, I think this question might be a little bit different, but right now I think there is a better than average chance than Rob Manfred is in the hall of fame one day. And it's just based on who gets in the hall of fame and how it's selected. And I know I, you know, there's no scenario in which I think he should be in the hall of fame, but it's based on who's picking these people and who, you know, the, the owner or the owner's buddy up with the commissioner, because he's basically working for them. And that cadre of, you know, of executives buddies up with um, the writers. And that's how Selig went from, you know, somebody who probably did a lot of damage to baseball to being um, anointed as the the game savior after his retirement and eventually making it to the Hall of Fame. I could be wrong, but 
I, it, it's just kind of sickening if you think that, you know, there is a better than average chance that Rob Manfred will be in the Hall of Fame someday. Um, and, you know, there's a whole litany of issues that go on with that. Um, you know, scandals that occurred under his watch and just the act of disdain he's had for the game. So one other thing related to that, um, and before I get to my, I just want to say, I really hope you're wrong. About I hope that. I am too, but I really, I, I'm not confident that I, I'd be wrong. I'm, I'm not confident that you're wrong either because it feels increasingly like the only thing you have to do as commissioner to get into the hall of fame is be commissioner for a while. But, um, yeah, it would be it would be a real shame if you were right about that, but I I have the same fear that you do, which is that you're right. Yeah, so two I guess things related to the future of the Hall of Fame that I want to get into. Um the first one also relates to Rob Manfred and it relates to someone who's going to be on next year's ballot uh and is being talked about as basically the premier candidate for next year's ballot, the the only player who probably has a chance to be a first-time Hall of Famer and Coincidentally, would this be a future Yes Network? I was gonna analyst? say just hired by the Yes Network. So Carlos Beltran will be on the Hall of Fame ballot next year, and I like Carlos Beltran. I'm excited to hear him call baseball games next year. I think he's really smart. We'll add a lot of insight to Yankees broadcast, but you can't deny his role in the sign stealing scandal. And there are going to be other players who come into Hall of Fame balloting in five years, ten years, so on, who played a role in sign stealing. And I think the sign stealing scandal is kind of the next steroid issue because i think we're we're moving out of the range of the bonds and clemens who were uh under pd allegation but never confirmed now you know in the future i think guys will come in like robinson cano tested positive and we already know how it's going to look because alex rodriguez and manny ramirez are not gaining traction what do you think about sign stealing do you think that that's going to be something that's judged less harshly more harshly and i think beltran will be the first test case so how do you feel about beltran's candidacy it's it's a tough question because from from the discourse from players that I feel like I've absorbed, um, they were really unhappy about the way the Astros were handling sign stealing. I think the, the consistent message across the board was, this is beyond the pale. This is... There is a level of this that is acceptable, and if you can do it legitimately just because you're good at it, that's one thing, but this exceeds those limits. Um, and then I have to square that with the fact that we know there are guys, we know there are steroid users in the Hall of Fame. We know there are guys who built their career on throwing the spitball or modifying the baseball in the Hall of Fame, you know, we know there are people who were involved in unsavory competitive practices who are in the Hall of Fame. Um, how will they judge this specific sign stealing scandal? I think it's hard. I think one of the reasons it's hard is Beltron was effectively scapegoated as far as I can tell. I find it incredibly hard to believe that Carlos Beltron and Alex Cora were operating alone as the commissioner's report wants us to believe um it, it just doesn't add up for me so you know how do we distribute that responsibility how harshly do we judge it how do we measure the fact that carlos beltran was an astro for like i don't know a year and a half or half a year i guess one season at the end of his career and it was that sign stealing season and that 
you know, he had already created all of the value that he ever created as a player prior to that. What do we infer about what else he might have been involved in at other points in his career? Um, you know, these are all hard questions to me. Um, and then the last thing for me is, like, Carlos Beltran has 70 war. He has 435 home runs. He has over 2,700 hits. Like, all of those kind of feel like surefire Hall of Famer stats, but he only won one World Series, and it's the most tainted World Series in a century. Um, he never won an MVP. He was a Rookie of the Year, sure. Uh, but, like, Carlos Beltran might be the guy with the most Hall of Fame stats that I think of as Hall of Very Good. I don't know. It's I think he's a really tough case, but this... The Hall of Fame vote may be the place where it makes the least sense to penalize Beltron and the most sense to penalize other guys who were involved in it. Like, I, you know, down the road, hopefully not very far down the road because I don't wish these guys prosperous or long careers, um, like Alex Bregman and Carlos Correa and Jose Altuve are going to be on Hall of Fame ballots. And... These are guys who established themselves in baseball around this time. Maybe they won the MVP in one of the seasons when the Astros are known to have been doing this. Maybe they were Rookie of the Year around this time. Maybe the year that uh, the Astros got exposed and all this stuff was taken away, they had horrible seasons. Um, you know, I think... Beltron is only the tip of the iceberg for the question of how voters are going to have to evaluate this, and there are going to be much more interesting cases down the road. As far as the extent to which I would consider it when evaluating Beltron as a Hall of Fame candidate, I think it's, I think it's pretty minimal, um, just because his career was basically over. Um, I, I think he, you know. Let's let's act like he retired when he got traded away from the Yankees in 2016. He still has a very good case. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with your points. I mean, I think personally, I would definitely not factor it in as much for him because of that. I do think so. My feeling on this and this goes back to Manfred's role in the league's role. I don't think anyone's going to care. And it's because the league has given them permission not to care. And this has made me realize just how much people take their cues from the league because the league has made steroids a huge issue and they've scapegoated Bonds and Clemens and A-Rod and thus the voters have, or a lot of the voters have followed the cues and taken license to put their foot down. And when the league didn't care about it in the 90s and early 2000s when they were profiting off of it, people also didn't care. With the sign stealing scandal, Rob Manfred has basically said, we don't care because we're not going to penalize these guys. And I think it's almost a sure thing that someone like Altuve is going to be um, evaluated neutrally, objectively, without the sign stealing. Maybe, you know, it'll be mentioned, and there will be people who use it to ding him and potentially keep him off ballots, but it's not going to rise to the level of steroids. And I'd argue that in a lot of cases, it was more impactful than steroids. And it's all because the league, you know, has given people permission to not care, and they've made it their party line that this is not a big issue. And as Manfred said, it's a piece of metal, and nobody cares about, you know, the impact of this. And I frankly, it just re that really annoys me because I think, you know, 
I think the league realizes how influential it is um and they're doing this intentionally because they want to cover up for their past mistakes in the steroid era and they want to villainize all these people and for sign stealing i just don't think they feel the same level of culpability and they don't feel like they have to cover their own asses and thus that's it's gonna that's how it's gonna be in 10 years i guarantee you that people aren't gonna care as much and it's yeah, it's a Rob yeah, Manfred I, issue. I think I think you make a good point that the the writers really do take their cues from the league at uh you know, in large part. And we saw that especially with this year's Hall of Fame voting. Uh and I think the you know, Rob Manfred very clearly, because of his own mishandling of the situation, decided that everyone should think that the uh, sign stealing scandal didn't matter at all. Um, it's, and it it makes some sense, you know, if you are a journalist in a team's market, you're much more protected by, you know, having a good relationship with the owner, and you know, therefore putting yourself on that side of the league versus players situation than you are having good relationships with players because players move every few years um and you can get a lot of security out of being someone that the owner likes um and that you know that creates an incentive structure that's probably a little bit messed up but uh is how we get those results that you were talking about so um I think, you know, the conclusion we reach is Hall of Fame voting is corrupt today. It will be corrupt tomorrow. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, I would rather have uh, a committee of players, you know, X number of players from each decade who played, you know, 10 plus years and have 40 plus war. I would have them decide who gets in the Hall of Fame because I don't think yeah. I don't think any. I, I think the journalists have shown that this is not a responsibility that they can execute faithfully. Yeah, and I think the error committee does, you know, a little bit of that. And that's how we get some of the guys that, you know, the guys that you discuss have a chance, you know, the Dick Allens and the Greg Nettles, they have a chance because of the error committees. And we would be talking about guys, other guys like Minnie Minoso, Tony Oliva and Jim Cott, who were all inducted by the era committees this year. You know, they might not meet the standard of what everyone considers a Hall of Famer, but you know, I think to by a lot of standards, they are Hall of Famers. And I think the more important thing is that there is a chance to atone for the writers' mistakes, shortcomings in many cases. Uh, one other thing I actually wanted to quickly touch on related to, I guess, error committees is I think that it's interesting looking at the starting pitchers um, who are on the ballot and how, you know, Kurt Schilling obviously fell off the ballot and pretty much everyone else. Andy Pettit was the next highest one with 10%. I think there's got to be a And we a do know that Andy Pettit is a starting pitcher. Andy Pettit, indeed, is a starting pitcher. Just ask Mike Francesa. Um, I think, Just ask him. I think there's going to be have to be a reckoning with how people deal with starting pitchers because they're, you know not everyone is going to be at a... Or Roger Clemens, also uh, on the ballot. Forgot to mention him. But not everyone's going to be at that level, and especially in the age of relievers pitching more and more innings, starters going less and less. I think our standards have to change a little bit. And, you know, just looking at some of the guys who are going to be coming up on the, the next few years, I think the next time there's going to be a Hall of Famer who 
or a candidate who's a serious Hall of Fame contender is CC Sabathia in 2025. And, you know, after that, yeah. we're going to get to guys like, um, I, I don't think Cole Hamels or John Lester are going to be Hall of Famers, but I think there will be discussions. And then the, you know, Ver, it'll be a while before we get to the Verlander, Scherzer, Kershaw, no doubt guys. But I think a lot of these guys, the, you know, Felix Hernandez will be a candidate. CC will be a candidate. Um, the Tim Hudson's, the Mark Burley's, you know, I don't necessarily know if they're all Hall of Famers, but I think we can't just keep people out because they don't meet the high standards. I mean, even in the last 20 years, there haven't been a ton of starting pitchers inducted outside of the that spurred a few years ago with Smoltz, Maddox, Glavin, Pedro, Halliday. Um, and I think it's just it's a shifting game. And I hope people start to examine the candidacies of the Pettits and the Burleys and the Felixes. And I do appreciate, you know, the conversation we had with Ryan where we kind of dove into every single player. And, you know, I think we didn't write off Burley and Tim Hudson. We looked at their candidacies. And I don't know if people are always willing to do that because, you know, if in their opinion, if they don't meet 300 wins or a certain ERA, they shouldn't be on the ballot. But that's just not going to be baseball. I don't know the next guy's going to get the 300 wins. Yeah, I mean, it. It there may not be an active player who does get there. Um, I think, you know, it's it's funny... Andy Pettit, Cole Hamels, and Mark Burley are all within a war of each other. Um, I think there's no question that in that group, from most to least deserving, it's Pettit, Burley, Hamels. Um, and I'm a Phillies apologist, so, you know, sorry. Um, apologist pun intended, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Andy Pettit, we're talking about a guy with 60 war. 60 war is plenty for a hall of famer uh 256 wins the postseason wins leader five world series uh mark burley we're talking about a guy who as uh my friend ryan mead would like me to point out and issue a correction he's faced the minimum twice once in his perfect game once in a no hitter in which sammy sosa reached base and was then picked off it was not a double play uh he was picked off um you know, Burley, we're talking about a guy with 59 war, which is also really good. Uh, only 214 wins, but we know about some of the weakness of wins as a stat. Um, and the exact same ERA plus as Andy Pettit. Uh, Hamels, who was another guy that you mentioned, we've talked about Tim Hudson at length. Hamels is 59.3 war, so right in between Burley and Pettit. His win-loss record is relatively weak. His ERA plus is actually the best of the group. Um, you know, he was a he was a very good pitcher for a long time. Obviously, has a World Series and was the NLCS MVP and World Series MVP in that year. Um, you know, you're right. We're gonna have to we I I say we as if we haven't already done it. The writers are gonna have to reevaluate. What does it mean in, you know, the post kind of Jack Morris world to have been a Hall of Fame starting pitcher? And based on your answer, writers, to that question, have you just articulated the point of view that only Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz are Hall of Famers? Because I think a lot of people are going to back themselves into that corner. Or, you know, Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz, and Halliday. Um and I think I think it would be a real shame if that were the case, because while 
you may say you can tell the story of baseball without Cole Hamels, Mark Burley, and Andy Pettit. It it's not the easiest thing to do. Um, and you know, once you get into CC Sabathia, um, I think Felix Hernandez is an incredibly interesting case because he he passes my like best in the league at your position for a number of years test uh in spite of pitching at the same time as you know not only Verlander, Scherzer, Hamels, but Cliff Lee uh and you know some other some other very good players. Um it I think you're right. The standard needs to change, but I think the performance of Burley and Pettit on this year's ballot shows that they have no idea where the standard needs to be. Absolutely no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you know, the Felix case will be interesting because he honestly, of all the pitchers that you know the Yankees have faced in the last 10, 15 years, he's probably top three for just like absolutely terrified to face him. And, you know, best team in the league at a number of those points, just like, would absolutely just sit down and roll over against him. And so, you know, for 10 years, Felix was basically the best pitcher in baseball. Like, you know, would you have wanted him to pitch a few more mediocre years instead of just flaming out and being done at 31, 32? That's the question I have for a lot of these. I mean, the guys who go and, you know, pad their stats are just like looked more favorably, you know, than the guys who just stop at an early age. I think, Another guy who's going to be in an interesting, similar position, not a pitcher, but a hitter, is Buster Posey. And I think he's going to get in, but I would argue... Buster Posey and Joe Maurer, I think, are both getting in. Yeah, I would argue that Felix is, you know, a similar situation. I think just catcher versus pitcher, people are willing to accept less from their catcher on the offensive side. And because of, like, the pitchers in the Hall of Fame who pitched, like, 500 innings a year and, you know, for 20 years, like... The standards are just higher, and I think it's time to reevaluate that. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. So, um, speaking of what people expect offensively from their catchers, you want to talk a little Gary speaking Sanchez? Of Hall of Famers. Speaking of Hall of Famers, you want to talk a little Gary Sanchez, a little hot Gary summer here in the dead of winter as we just got snow dumped all over the East Coast? Yeah, and I think... To preface the you know the back half of the podcast, you absolutely everyone listening to this should take a minute, go to yankeesfiles.com. We had two pieces run this week and the, we'll talk about each of them in the context around them. But the first one on Monday was uh as if you didn't know, uh we are and Will Harris specifically is a Gary Sanchez lifer. He's a Gary Stan, he's he's got his sunglasses on, his bathing suit for hot Gary summer. And he went to a huge deep dive about um, just why Gary is going to surprise people next year, or in some cases, maybe meet expectations. And Gary's just a polarizing player. So sometimes I think it's really helpful, especially for Gary. It's helpful for everyone, but because you say Gary Sanchez and every Yankees fan has an opinion. And sometimes it's good to just step back and look at the numbers and, you know, separate that from the narrative and the feelings you have about him and see there's a lot of interesting stuff to look at for lack of a better word so yeah why don't you explain to everyone why gary is on his way to the hall of fame or at least on his way to a good 2022 yeah so i mean everyone everyone who follows us has a handle on the fact that we are big gary sanchez supporters myself especially and i think gary kind of cursed himself 
by being so good so fast. There was no runway to Gary producing at an all-star level. It just happened. He showed up in 2016, played in 53 games, hit 20 home runs, hit 299 or 300, should have been the rookie of the year, got it stolen from him by Michael Fulmer. Comes back in 2017, hits like 275 with a 30-plus home run season, all-star. Okay, now, like, this is where he's set expectations. This is where, you know, hitting in that 280 range with 30 to 40 home run pop uh, while playing every day at catcher. That is what people expected from Gary Sanchez immediately once he started playing regularly because that's what he did. And it's important to remember that there aren't guys doing that at catcher. Like, it, it, it doesn't happen. The Yasmani Grandal was probably the best offensive catcher in the league last year, and he was just three true outcomes. Um, you know, there's JT Real Muto, who's great. There's Will Smith, who's great. And at the end of the article, I did say, like, look, if you can get one of those guys, fine, but you can't. Um I just want to put some context behind who Gary is as an offensive player and why we should believe that he is going to produce at an elite level next year for his position. So, you know, Gary Sanchez has had three good years and three kind of not so good years. Maybe three good years, two bad years, and one in the middle. But he's played 457 games as a catcher. I have some stats about guys in their first 457 games at catcher that I think you might find interesting. Uh, since World War II, uh, you can substitute that for since integration, uh, Gary Sanchez hit more home runs in his first 457 games as a catcher than anyone else in Major League history. Uh, in that same span, fifth uh, in runs batted in, eighth in slugging percentage. That means that from an offensive production perspective, we're watching the career of one of the top 10 catchers of the last 77 years in the number of games that he's played at the position. That's something that it's... It, that context is really, really important. And if you take out the last two years, which we know were just nonsense because of the pandemic, and we know that COVID really hurt Gary last year, and you watch, you look at just a player's first 306 games at catcher, which was 2016 through 2019 for Gary, um, he is ninth in OPS and leads Mike Piazza by 14 home runs uh, in, that, in that span. He ranks second in slugging and third in runs batted in. Uh, in that span, he ranks ahead of Jorge Posada and Yogi Berra in almost everything. Gary, on top of that, made multiple All-Star games by the time he was 26. He has as many 20-plus home run seasons and as many 30-plus home run seasons as Aaron Judge. He has beaten Yogi Berra and Jorge Posada's single-season bests in both home runs and OPS. Um... Like we should, we should be appreciative of what we've seen from Gary in the last six seasons. Gary Sanchez has been unbelievably good. He's been one of the best catchers in baseball in that time, and one of the best offensive catchers by a lot of metrics that we've seen in this sample size in a really long time. Like I, I want to drive home, Jorge Posada 
was like 26 or 27 by the time he finally had a good year. At that point, Gary Sanchez had hit like 100 home runs. Like, this is a guy who burst onto the scene early and is going through definitely some growing pains and some adjustment at the major league level. And so often catchers come up later than Gary did and take a while to adjust. And it's not just been adjustment that has hurt Gary. It was injuries in 2018. It was COVID in 2021. It was the weird season in 2020. But um, Gary Sanchez has a penchant for getting incredibly unlucky. And those of you who listen to the podcast during the season know that I am a believer in regression to the mean almost above all other things. And last year, there were only 13 players who were unluckier than Gary based on the difference between their expected and realized batting averages. Of the bottom 20 players who had the biggest gap between their expected and realized batting averages, he had the highest barrel rate and an above-average hard hit rate. So that means that there are plenty of guys getting similarly unlucky to him, but none of them had the quality of contact that Gary was showing. So he's hitting the ball like someone who should be a very good hitter, and oftentimes, you know, for lack of a better explanation, those balls are going right at people. Uh, he was similarly unlucky in his difference between slugging and expected slugging and WOBA and expected WOBA. He basically rated somewhere in the bottom like 20 to 40 major leaguers in luck. Um, I went into some analysis of Gary's, uh, Gary's batted balls that are very likely to be hits, anything with uh, an expected batting average over 500. Basically, the league on those balls was getting really lucky. Gary was getting really unlucky. It, If Gary had had the same luck as the rest of the league between 2020 and 2021 on those balls, uh, his cumulative batting average between 2020 and 2021 would go up by 15 points. Um, there's really not a good explanation for why this is happening other than He's just been in a period of bad luck. And I think one thing that illustrates that for us is the really cool tool on Baseball Savant that tells us how similar different hitters are. The most similar hitter in the last two years to Gary Sanchez is Brandon Lau. Brandon Lau has finished top 10 in MVP in back-to-back years and I think posted an OPS or a WRC plus of 137 last year. Also on that list, Kyle Lewis, Ryan Mountcastle, Chris Taylor, Kyle Seeger, Matt Chapman, Dansby Swanson, Seth Brown. We're talking about very good hitters on this list who are all very similar to Gary Sanchez. So what's like what's going on here? Um, by barrel rate, he profiles similarly to Vlad Jr., Teoscar Hernandez, Brandon Lau again, Giancarlo Stanton, George Springer, Devers, Pete Alonzo. I mean, this is a guy whose quality of contact is elite, and that's, that's pretty freaking good. Um, there's nothing, There's nothing about the way that Gary is hitting the ball or his approach at the plate, which he's become meaningfully more disciplined in the last few years, and that's really benefited him. Uh, you know, he walks almost as much as Aaron Judge, or at least walked almost as much as Aaron Judge or more than Aaron Judge in 2021. Um, this is a guy who the only real knock on him is his strikeout rate. 
it's the only real criticism you can make of him at the plate. Um, and yet, there's all this belief that Gary Sanchez is some some damaged good from an offensive perspective. Uh, chase rate, same as Michael Brantley's, better than Bryce Harper's, better than Freddie Freeman's, better than Yuli Gurriel's, better than Shohei Otani's. So in that group, you have the last two NL MVPs, the AL batting champ, and the AL MVP from 2021. Better than Jordan Alvarez, better than Wander Franco. I, the guy is really disciplined. He walked as often as Aaron Judge last year and more than Stanton, Correa, Seager, Tatis, Springer, Bogarts, Machado, Chris Bryant, Rafi Devers, Bellinger, Marcus Simeon. Like, and the criticism that he strikes out too much, um, <laughs> Gary Sanchez has exactly the same walk-to-strikeout ratio as Rafi Devers, Starling Marte, Reese Hoskins, and Jose Abreu. Have I named a bad player yet? You have not. I have not named a bad player yet, and these are the most similar guys to Gary Sanchez in all of these offensive categories. So what gives? I don't know. Why are his projections all for him to have a bad or average offensive season when they're not at all in line with uh, any of his expected stats ever? I have no idea. Gary Sanchez is an elite offensive catcher. He's one of the best power hitters in the game. He is far better than Kyle Higashioka. He has an elite pop time and an elite arm. The only thing in baseball that Gary Sanchez is bad at is framing. And if there were robot umpires tomorrow, which there should be, Kyle Higashioka would not have a job, and Gary Sanchez would be widely recognized for being what he is, which is one of the top five catchers in the game. And if you go and read the article that I posted on YankeesFiles.com, you will be hard-pressed to disagree with that statement, and you'll get out your bathing suit and your sunglasses and your sunscreen and your towel, and you'll come meet me at the beach for another hot Gary summer. Yeah, I you know, I, I think the research you did was just really illuminating. And w one thing that I think is interesting is that we're, you're almost writing this and we're all talking about it. Like Gary had a terrible year from start to finish last year. I mean, look at him in July and his stats are really good. I mean, he was getting backdoor all-star consideration. Then he got COVID and I'm sorry, but I'm not willing to write off a player who got you know like everyone's impact from covid was different and we don't know how it impacted gary and i'm you know i'm, I'm not going to write him off his season because he got a virus that potentially could have taken more out of him than we know but for three solid months gary was a really good and it hitter especially when other players in the yankees lineup went down he carried that lineup for a stretch in june and july and the thing that impresses me i mean yeah all the things that you said are just examples of how gary stacks up favorably to the other players in the league especially considering his position i think people need to realize that there are terrible catchers out there i don't know how many times we can say this but these the manny pinas of the world are if they were yankees people would be hating on them for 10 more reasons than they hate on gary i think that yankees fans have a tendency to hate on the players they perceive as lazy which is terrible we saw it with cano we saw it with gary it only stopped with Cano once he became an MVP level hitter. And, you know, not everyone is going to be Derek Jeter. Not everyone is going to fit in that profile 
people operate, people play in different ways. I think look at someone like DJ LeMahieu compared to Gary, and I think it's a really interesting comparison of perception versus reality because, you know, DJ is someone who consistently is mediocre. In 2021, we saw that. I hope he's better, but I'm not going to expect it. Gary is runs hot and cold, and if if fans' reactions have shown anything, it's that they like the guy who's consistently <laughs> mediocre, which makes no sense to me. Yep. Um, Let's not forget that Gary has been basically one of the unluckiest players in baseball in really the last four years. DJ LeMahieu was the luckiest player in baseball from an offensive perspective in 2019 and 2020. Like, in 2020, it was off the charts. Uh, and that's why so many people called his regression this year predictable. Uh, just want to get a few things, a few notes in on a couple of things you mentioned. First, uh, I included some tweets where I roasted people for being wrong about Gary Sanchez in this article. Um, someone advocated that the Yankees should sign Manny Pena or Tucker Barnhart. Um, the, neither one has... Uh, neither one is good, and they've combined to be worth fewer war than Gary Sanchez in over two times the plate appearances in their career. Uh, second, on something you said, from the day after uh, Aaron Boone said that Kyle Higashioka had won the starting job to August 1st, which was right around the time that Gary tested positive for COVID, he posted a 123 WRC+. plus. Yeah. And that's, I mean, there were so many moments in that span, pre-COVID, post-April, Gary, that people are just not remembering or selectively remembering, I think, as the case may be. Um, one other thing I just wanted to say about Gary is that I was honestly more encouraged from him this year than I have been ever. And that was all because of the plate discipline you talked about. I think the biggest thing with Gary being the strikeout rate, it actually, this year, you know, to offset that, he walked at a career-high clip. And um, career high in walks and ended up, um, you know, if the batting average is low, he has the on-base percentage now to offset it. And, you know, all he has to do is... And his strikeout rate fell by over half um, or by, by a quarter between... 2020 and 2021 which people for whatever reason don't want to remember right and it just takes some of those balls to fall or him to get a little luckier and those numbers are going to be back in line with 2017 to 2019 i mean yes 2020 was a exactly. bad gary sanchez season it was just a bad season for everyone i'm not going to put any stock into 2020 there were a lot of reasons to be optimistic about 2021 gary and you know that's even before looking into all the the um the underlying statistics that you looked at just the top level numbers and you know the pre-covid gary you know for may june and july he was a legitimate game changer and i think that it's easy for him to get back there next year and unfortunately i think this is probably his last chance to do so because being a free agent i don't know how the yankees are going to approach it but i don't see them sinking millions of dollars into gary i don't think the door is closed but I think, you know, the stars have to align. And I think Gary's got to show the 2017-2019 performance. Um, I don't think the Yankees are particularly attached to keeping him. And I think the judge extension is going to be a much higher focus, as it should be. I just hope they remember that Gary has hit and is playing a more valuable position than judge. And he is equally, if not, maybe not more successful, but, you know, it really... 
I, I'm not going to go that far because that might be the uh, a, a too bold statement. But I mean, look, we're we're talking about Aaron Judge, who is a top ten player in baseball, versus Gary Sanchez, who is a top five player at his position. It's not. It's not a comparison that is fair or necessary, but to say that it's easier to find an elite right fielder than an elite catcher is true. Yes. It's not a statement about the priorities the Yankees should have in bringing back one of them and not the other. Uh, Of course, the Yankees should not be choosing. They should bring them both back. Um, But but yeah, I mean, your, your, your point is well taken. It's there are probably 25 teams that would love to have Gary Sanchez. Yeah, and I think that Yankees fans are used to having uh, guys behind the plate who can both hit and defend and at very high level. Which is weird because the only guy they've had in our lifetimes who could do that was Russell Martin. Yeah, I think that people, I, they have this like expectation. I mean, yeah, let's not forget like what Jorge Posada was he was at, at Jorge Posada's best. He was, you know, not as good a hitter as Gary Sanchez at his best. And he was, and Jorge Posada was all bat in the way that Gary Sanchez is all bat. At least Gary Sanchez can throw out runners. Yeah, I think the point is to conclude this. There's a lot of different timelines the Yankees be going down right now with superior defensive catchers who can't hit worth a lick. And I promise you, the complaints will be coming in fast and furious. So. The problems don't go away if you get rid of Gary Sanchez. They only intensify. Absolutely. So, you know, I think we've said between this conversation and the article just about everything there is to say about the Gary Sanchez situation as it presently stands. One thing I want to get into is I had just the best time reading the your retrospective on the 2012 Yankees, which went up uh, yesterday morning, Friday morning. Um, as you know, uh, obviously the listeners don't, I was pestering you to upload it in draft form to the website early so I could read it, uh, because I was just really excited about it. Um, you know, the, the 2012 Yankees were an incredibly fun team to watch. Uh, you and I have some very good memories of them, uh, and they've been kind of your, like the team that you look back on most fondly, 2009 excluded, of course, for a long time. Um, you know, I think you feel similarly about them as I do about kind of the 2016 team um, and maybe some some earlier teams, some pre-2009 teams as well. And the way that you wrote this article as a a retrospective on the season that was told throughout through the sequence of the game one of the 2012 ALCS I just thought was like a really cool stylistic choice and I was shocked by how you know kind of how well they lined up um and I just had a great time reliving so much of what happened that year. I mean, you and I were texting about the the Ichiro trade and um we obviously talk about Raul Abanez a lot and he is the subject of like half of the article. Um and then the names that are in this in this article, like Jim Johnson was thought to be basically the best reliever in baseball at this point. Um and Raul 
you know, really hurt him and you get some great Yankees Red Sox memories. I mean, I'll let you take it from here, but I I said this on Twitter. I want to reiterate it here. Like this is as far as I'm concerned, like maybe the coolest, best piece of writing that is on our website. Uh, Certainly the best in this, in this vein, in this kind of area. Cause this was, I had a ton of fun reading this. I think it's super well done. And, um, you know, you absolutely lived up to your billing as kind of the number one fan of the 2012 Yankees 10 years later. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I think the cool thing about the off season is that, you know, even if we weren't in a lockout, there would be downtime to get to take on cool projects like this. And this was definitely on my to-do list. Um, people don't know, and maybe I'll actually link it for if you want to check it out. But I was in a previous life. I was also a Yankees blogger. Uh, running a solo show it was called 27 up 27 down and I did that for 2012 and parts of 2013 2014 and so I think part of the reason I connect fondly with 2012 is that well, that was when you know I put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard and I said you know I'm gonna actually write about this team the first article I did I still remember it was called the uh, I think it was like the rise and fall of AJ Burnett it was right after they traded AJ Burnett which I did not mention in this article but I just did like a deep dive into Burnett's three years with the Yankees and from there I just you know I was hooked in writing and it didn't come out as consistently as I think I wanted it to but I was able to track a lot of that 2012 team and really go deep into that season and like you said, I consider myself one of the the biggest 2012 Yankees historians, and I just had a ton of fun writing about this. Um, I kind of styled it in the vein of another great Yankees book called The Last Night of the Yankees Dynasty, where Buster only chronicles the end of the more commonly referred to as a dynasty, 1996 through 2001 Yankees through the Game 7 of the 2001 World Series, which... I think it's a pretty natural stopping point to reflect. And there's definitely something that ended that night. But there's a lot of players who continued on for the Yankees. And the 2009 World Series had a lot of those same players, especially in the core. So I think in one respect, yes, that was a dynasty that ended. But the dynasty, in a larger sense, continued on through 2009 and through the 2009, 2010, 2011. And I think the, the stopping point, in my opinion, is probably 2012 because it was the last time that the Jeter Rivera, even though it wasn't playing, Pettit, um, you know, Posada retired. So it doesn't overlap completely, but the, the crux of that team, and I think Jeter specifically, um, that was the last time they made the playoffs. And I thought about what the stopping point was. And I think the game one of the 2012 ALCS was a good way to capture that because that was the, I think the last time that team had hope. And especially with that ninth inning comeback, um, and especially, as you said, how the names throughout the season, specifically Ichiro and Raul Labanez, were responsible for fueling that comeback. Um, and they were responsible for a lot of the Yankees' success down the stretch. And how when Jeter broke his ankle, I felt like, and a lot of Yankees fans, I'm sure, felt like that was the end of something. Like, it didn't, the Yankees did not lose the game at that point. They're down by a run in the first extra innings of game one of the 2012 ALCS, but it just felt like something you know died that night and they went out pretty quietly and didn't make it back to the postseason until the um aside from 2015's brief wildcard game appearance until 2017 with a new core so the 2012 yankees was it was an ending point and 
if you go back deeper into the season, it was an insanely fun season for a team that was throughout that dynasty run, uh, usually pretty pretty uh, handily took down its opponents in the regular season. There's a lot of playoff drama, but there's never really a doubt that they're going to make it to the postseason. In 2012, uh, the Orioles really gave them a run for their money. And we remember the postseason, but also down the stretch, I had forgotten that literally from September 3rd or 4th to October 3rd, the last day of the season, the Yankees and the Orioles were within a game and a half of each other every single day. So they were either tied, the Yankees were up by a game, the Yankees were up by a game and a half. And for 30 days that went on, and to be an Orioles fan must have been really frustrating because when the Orioles countered, the Yankees just struck right back. And so the Yankees never fell behind in that run. But it was there were some really exciting games down the stretch. And, of course, Raul Abanez, we all remember how fun that was, uh, watching him win game after game, especially in the postseason. And it was just a team that a lot of aging players, uh, I think the return of Andy Pettit was something that, you know, I still remember where I was when I read that tweet. That was incredibly exciting to see him come back. Uh, picking up the each rows and wait i think i remember i think we can yeah wait we're i wanted i think this. i was with you, you right and the... i think i think we were we were in high school yeah. we we're at our high school and i think you either saw the tweet and came and found me or we were together when you saw the tweet. I think we were or when in, we saw. It the was tweet. like before school started, when everyone kind of congregated. Yep. Yeah, in the in the lobby of the high school, and I yep. think either we were there or I found you. I still remember that. That honestly, yeah. it was a you know, it was one of the most shocking moments because Andy Pettit was on no one's radar. Um. Oh my God! Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I still have bookmarked um, that the great pinstripe alley article from a couple days later called how it happened which is <laughs> an apocryphal uh an apocryphal like instant messenger conversation between brian cashman joe girardi uh hal steinbrenner and andy pettit where he tells them that he's coming back. I think Hank Steinbrenner makes an appearance. Uh, Mark Teixeira makes yeah. an appearance. <laughs> it's it's one of the greatest things ever, and I still have that bookmarked. You know, ten years later. Yeah, and it just I, I think Andy Pettit was is such a beloved Yankee, and talk about just a shock. Like I really don't know what would be comparable. I mean, like I guess it'd be like CC coming back now, but we kind of know that's not going to happen because you know, his arm was shot. I guess Pettit was, you know, he felt the itch and he was throwing on backfields covertly. It was just a cool story of how that happened. But he was actually really important down the stretch because of some other injuries. And uh, there's definitely some specific things that I want you to weigh in on. Um, but just kind of as as a whole to have Pettit, to have Kuroda, CC have a you know, front of really good pitching staff, to have uh, the Jeter resurgence. I mean, he had an MVP level performance that year. Coming up, I led the league in hits. Yeah, him and Cano were just a solid middle of the infield, best in the league probably. It was a bunch of guys who, you know, most of the guys were kind of at the end of their careers, but it was like one last run. And I, I think we all love watching movies or reading stories of like, you know, getting the band back together, one last shot at it. And that's how the 2012 Yankees felt. And right up until Jeter broke his ankle and, you know, that ALCS ended pretty quickly. I think they had a real shot at winning and the Tigers only won 88 games that year. So, you know, in another reality, 
the Yankees could have faced the Giants that World Series. Uh, one thing I did want to ask you to weigh in on, though, because I know this is near and dear to your heart at another time and shows how you've always been a fan of Yankees catchers and especially bat first catchers. Uh, one thing that happened very early in that year, I think we just passed the 10 year anniversary of it was the Michael Pineda for Jesus Montero trade. And it didn't ultimately impact the 2012 Yankees besides not having Montero because Pineda was hurt for so long, but that was another shocking moment of that year and really uh, was shifted. Uh, I think a lot of expectations of who was going to be on the team in 2012. Uh, what, what were your thoughts on that trade when that happened? Well, yeah, I mean, as you recall, I, and this is not surprising given the discussion we just had about Gary Sanchez. I loved Montero. I was so bought in on all the prospect hype. You know, he came up and had those like 10 great games or whatever at the end of uh, 2011. He was like flicking opposite field homers. It was sick. Um, and I was just, I was so bought in on Jesus Montero. Um, I got a signed Jesus Montero bat for Christmas in 2011 that I still have. Um, and then like a couple weeks later they traded him and I was distraught. And then when Pineda didn't do anything for a couple of years, I was like, wow, the Yankees really lost this trade. And, you know, obviously Montero's career really went downhill. He didn't really produce with the Mariners. He never stayed in good enough shape to play at a major league level. He got, popped for PEDs at one point, if I remember correctly. But, um, yeah, I remember, I'm sure we talked about it at the time. I was, I was not happy about getting rid of Montero, but, you know, Russell Martin did certainly win me back pretty quickly. Uh, Russell Martin was a ton of fun and it was fun that at the end of the 2012 season, Correct me if I'm wrong, but at the end of the 2012 season, we had a student teacher in our history class who looked just like a scaled down version of Russell Martin, which yep. made it Nectarios especially nice. Shout out Nectarios. <laughs> yeah, I remember Martin hit a huge home run game on the ALDS. I think we showed up to class and we were like probably congratulating yeah. him more than we would the actual Russell Martin. That was the best. But yeah, some other moments I just want to quickly highlight in that season. Uh, I think another shocking moment that I referenced in the article was the fact that Mariano Rivera was injured and out for the season after May. And, and talk about another moment when that happened. It seemed like the season was over. Shagging yeah. fly balls in Kansas City, like the stupidest way to get injured and tore his ACL. And I remember how upset I was. And, you know, because the Yankees, it's you know, something that still holds for the Yankees is they're great at finding relievers or they're great at pulling out, you know, these unknown relievers. Uh, I think 10 years ago, they were great at identifying, maybe not pulling them out of nowhere, but they're great at identifying relievers who could supplement their current core and take over. And it seemed like they never had a gap at closer. And they didn't in this case, because Rafael Soriano came in and brought the untucked Jersey celebration. We all love. That was awesome. But yeah, yeah and no, you, you make a good point. Like, the the extra layer on top of the Rivera injury was we didn't know if it meant his career was over. Yeah. Uh and we're lucky we got one more year with him, but like nobody like, knew that it was, was gonna happen. It was very possible that his career ended on the warning track in Kansas City. Um, I actually think that if I remember correctly, um I think the twenty twelve season was going to be his last before that happened. I think that's right. Back. 
because he didn't want it to end like that, which shows you how incredible he is. Yeah, and I, I, I liked that you pointed out that Soriano rather poetically saved 42 games that year, um, and that it was also, you know, David Robertson had been a mainstay in the bullpen for a few years at that point, but he took on a really important role uh, that kind of elevated him to heir apparent status. Um, and David Robertson was then a phenomenal reliever for the Yankees for a long time. Um, and, you know, that season I'm sure was very formative for uh, Robertson becoming the player that he ultimately has become. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, in both iterations, that 2009 to 2012 and then coming back in 2017, uh, Robertson definitely one of my favorite Yankees of the last 10 years. Um, and so another trade I wanted to touch on that this just seemed to be the year of shocking transactions because when the Yankees trade for Ichiro that July, I think I was more floored than, you know, maybe anything that had happened trade-wise except for, or transaction-wise, except for Andy Pettit. Uh, and it was just because Ichiro at that, now we associate him a little more with the Yankees, but he was the, at that, that time, he was the Mariners lifer and he was one of the best hitters of all time, I'd argue. And, you know, he his performance was a little bit below where we were expecting it to be. But he was Ichiro, like he was a celebrity and it happened so quickly. And, you know, as I noted in the article, the Yankees were actually in Seattle. So some Mariners fan who wasn't checking their phone showed up to the game and saw their franchise player in another uniform opposing them, which I think is kind of funny. But Ichiro, you know, besides just being uh, someone to fill the left field gap, he hit really well down the stretch and he was definitely a spark plug. Um and one thing I didn't mention in the article, but I remember fondly, is that Matrix-level slide that he had in the ALDS where he, oh my yeah, he basically jumped over Matt Weeders and touched the home plate backwards. And it looked like yeah, something from Neo out of the Matrix. That was iconic. Yeah, that was incredible. Um, and yeah, Ichiro, I mean, I, I told you this when we were talking about your article offline, um, but I remember seeing the Ichiro news and immediately going on River Ave Blues and looking at the comments on maybe it could have even been the game thread that night and someone commenting, I saw the alert Yankees trade for Suzuki, thought they meant Kurt and almost killed myself. <laughs> so Yankees fandom has been crazy for more than the last few years. <laughs> exactly. Um, but no, Ichiro was, yeah, a spark plug is exactly the right way to say it. He was a ton of fun, surprisingly productive, uh, as you get into the, as you get into in the article, hit a couple of big home runs, which was not the Ichiro Suzuki thing to do, but it, we always got to have that fun conversation about how, you know, people say he could be a 30 home run hitter if, if only it's what he wanted to do, um, Every time it happened and he was just, yeah, I mean, one of the coolest players in baseball, like just an icon of the sport and to see Ichiro play in a Yankees uniform, even if it was past his prime, even if it wasn't the same guy who had, you know, set the single season hits record and all of that, it was, and you know, one rookie of the year and MVP, uh, it was, it was really fun to have Ichiro as a, as a, uh, productive part of this team. Yeah. And I still remember, I mean, 
the Yankees have traded and signed a lot of good players, but there's only one player. The minute they traded for him, I was like, I have to get this guy's shirt. And it was Ichiro just because it was the first name on the back of the shirt. And I still remember I got it the day he hit those Sunday night baseball home runs against the Red Sox. And it was really cool. Like just, it's hard to describe how much of a celebrity he was. I think people know, but like just someone, I think, you know, like a Derek Jeter level transcended baseball and to be on a first name, you know, to have your first name be to stand alone without your last name, basically everyone know who you are, I think was pretty cool. It's cool to see him contribute and be really important for that Yankees team down the stretch. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, the last thing I want to discuss, I mean, there's so much in this season, you know, as I touched on great hitting performances, Curtis Granderson hitting over 40 home runs second straight year. Um, Hiroki Kuroda, just an absolutely all-time Yankee, in my opinion. So fun to watch him pitch, and he was so big to pair with CeCe and Pettit and that pitching staff. But when you tell the story of the 2012 Yankees, you tell the story of a man named Raul Abanez. And what Raul Abanez did for that, that team was nothing short of shocking. I mean, he was not hitting that well in August. You know, I think there was talk of benching him. There was talk He didn't really play super regularly not a lot for the postseason roster. And then down the stretch, just turned into the most clutch hitter you have ever seen in your lifetime. In the regular season, had multiple game tying, game winning hits and home runs. And ALDS game three, uh, I think was the first player to hit the game tying home run and then the game winning home run in extra innings in postseason history. And that game was just incredible. I mean, I still remember like watching that. I think, you know, I was in my, my parents' house and, but definitely was, uh, I think at that time being in high school, had an early bedtime, but was following along on my phone. And when he was up and to, to win the game, I ran back down to the TV and just absolutely lost my mind. Definitely woke some people up. I mean, again, they, as I mentioned before, if you're not up to watch the end of these Yankees games, you're not a real fan. So change. And I mean, let's not, let's not bury this. The man was pinch hitting for A-Rod, was he not? He was, and A-Rod, you know, didn't have a great year and wasn't hitting especially well in the postseason, but it's Alex Rodriguez. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> it's, 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 we, Raul Abadias was bench hitting for a guy who hit 696 career home runs. Yeah, if our Hall of Fame discussion has shown you all nothing, it's that A-Rod is one of the top five hitters of all time and was pinch hit for by Raul Abadias, and it worked out perfectly it makes no sense and we got the iconic photo of a-rod having no idea what to do to celebrate so we just grabbed jeter's butt yeah a-rod definitely had some interesting celebrations i remember in 2010 (laughs) when tim's hit that game-winning home run after a-rod hit the tying home run i think a-rod like grabbed his helmet from him and was just like looking for somewhere to throw it and was like circling the the celebration a-rod just like a supremely weird dude i mean if you all saw at the packers game last weekend like He's just a weird dude. We love him, though. Um, he's he's super weird. But, yeah, I mean, the the Ibanez stuff is wild. And, uh, you know, he is a legend in Yankees history as a result. Um, I think the, the pinch hitting for A-Rod thing is the thing that gets me because, you know, how could you not want one of the best hitters of all time hitting in that situation? How could you want a guy who looks just like Jiminy Cricket hitting in that situation? <laughs> And it worked out perfectly. Um, and, you know, the fact that he hit the home run off Johnson, came up again, hit the walk-off. Um, all-time awful call. The walk-off home did run? Did he do it again? He did. 
yeah, no, but the, come on, it, great call, and also the home run of Mattis. Mattis was a lefty killer. I mean, the fact yeah. that Banyas jumped on that first pitch and sent it second deck was that wasn't just someone hitting a home run. That was someone who was brought in specifically to face lefties versus someone who absolutely was terrible against left-handed pitchers, and he just first pitch was gone. That was yeah, incredible. and Mattis basically threw like from first base. Mm-hmm. Like he would stand so far on that side of the rubber. Like I don't know how you hit him as a lefty. And yeah, and Ibanez was just off the charts that postseason. And the fact that you know he kept them alive in Game One of the ALCS too. Yeah. Um, the the it's he. I don't know how he did it, but you know sometimes guys just go off like. And he was just in some kind of zone that nobody else was in. And thank goodness he was playing for the Yankees. Yeah. And for him to come up in that situation, you know, with them down four and getting the tying run to the plate. I mean, it seemed magical. And sometimes like the magic stories work out. I mean, it didn't he didn't continue his hot hitting after that. But for that one moment, and I kind of detailed that in the article that like it felt like right then, like this was a team of destiny. And unfortunately, it wasn't. But I think to kind of you know put a bow on this, um, sometimes you know it's the teams we love don't have to be World Series winning teams. I think 2017 is another great example. Like I will remember that team so fondly and look back on those games. And they didn't win the World Series, and you know we can debate ad nauseum about sign stealing. But at the end of the day, we do have to accept they didn't win the World Series. But such a fun team and such a beloved team. And I think 2012, in my opinion, is kind of the same way. And they're a little more poetic just because it did seem more like an ending where 2017 was more like a beginning. I think they're actually kind of like interesting bookends in the five years in between. A lot of mediocrity. Um, Yeah, in the wilderness. A lot of mediocrity. But yeah, I had a great time remembering the 2012 Yankees and and this 10th year anniversary. I felt it was a really good time to do it. And, you know, that's what we love about baseball, just like those moments that seem unreal and that they couldn't actually happen except for in a storybook. Um, but they did happen. And like I said, doesn't always end up with your team on top, but they, they really tried their hardest. And I am glad we can, you know, with the uh, 10 years later, we can remember them and, you know, look back and appreciate their place in the Yankees history. Yeah. I think you summed it up well when you said, although they didn't know it at the time, the Yankees wouldn't make it back to the ALCS for five years. In that time, the old guard of Jeter, A-Rod, Rivera, and Pettit retired, making way for a new core of Aaron Judge, Gary Sanchez, Luis Severino, and Glaber Torres. You never know when the end is going to come for the Yankees. The 2012 ALCS was the last moment of joy and success for a generational group that lived a baseball lifetime together. I mean, that's that's what it is. These, these seasons can be so impactful. And, you know... I see the second half of 2016 as one of those things. I see 2017 as one of those things as mattering so much more to me than almost anything that happened after game one of that ALCS and before like Gary Sanchez's first career home run, you know? And I, I just think that, um, you know, it's, it's important for us to have these teams and these moments that occupy an outsized 
space in our minds because like that's what makes you a fan that's what we care about like that's why you and I can go back and forth about like the intricacies of like the the Bucknell and Cincinnati games in the 2011 UConn NCAA tournament run or about you know this entire ALDS and the Nate McLeod home run that got reviewed for hitting the foul pole or not and and all this stuff like that's what being a fan is all about and I think part of what I love so much about this article is that you know we all whether it's the 2012 Yankees or another team or another sport even we all have these uh teams and these moments that we identify with so deeply and for you to you know, go through all the work of expressing that and expressing what the 2012 Yankees are to you. That's just like the the essence of what it is to be a fan of something. And I think it's what makes this article so easy to relate to and so easy to enjoy. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think that's an excellent place to sum up or to to, to leave this on. Well, Whipple, we went long again. For some reason, uh, the... The lockout pods continue to be much longer than the other ones, but uh, you know this this was awesome. I think we can we can continue to rate our confidence that there's going to be a deal in place by February fifteenth or so. I'm I'm still pretty low. Nothing about the uh, negotiations has me feeling very confident. What about you? Uh, I'm I'm hovering. I think. Um... You know, this. I think this is going to be an important week. I think people have targeted a deal by February 1st as the kind of latest date to have a normal spring training. And while I don't think that's going to happen, I think the urgency is definitely heightened. Um, I think, you know, next time we record, if there's not something, I'm going to be a little concerned. But, hey, I'm trying to get down to Florida for spring training. So I'd really like to be able to start booking tickets and making those plans. So Rob Manfred, Tony Clark, if you're listening, uh, please help me. Uh, finalized by travel plans <laughs> that that would be very courteous of them um i think uh you know people are going to know this by the time this episode comes out but um as we're speaking about things of involving 12s and endings um tom brady just retired so oh that's uh, breaking news to me in a yeah yeah to <laughs> me as well in a in a podcast about endings, I think that's another pretty significant one. Well, Whipple, you know, there can be, there, there's no doubt that we will be back. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot more to dive into as far as why our readers and listeners should believe in Gary Sanchez uh, and so much more. Hopefully we have an agreement in place soon. Hopefully we have a normal start to the baseball season. Um, but I know it's going to be an eventful couple of months and I'm looking forward to it. So had a great time with you doing this as always. And until next time, let's go Yankees.